0: So, let's talk about music. My name is Sergio Barrera, and I'm a classical music composer and pianist. And with me is my guest, Brian Pettoni. And um, he was my first guest on the first season. Now he's my second guest on the second season. Probably he'll be my third guest in the third season. So, (laughs) just to keep things going. And uh, hi, Brian, how are you?
1: I'm doing fine, Sergio, it's nice to see you again.
0: Yes, same here. Uh, I've been following you somewhat on Facebook and stuff and things are looking pretty nice for you right now, right? You have a new a girlfriend and, and you-
1: Oh yeah, Jennifer, you know we-
0: Yeah, Jennifer is my
1: girlfriend and um, we've been, we've known each other for a while and we've done a lot of collaborations together actually. Our music's pretty special. You gotta know, check it out at uh, logansound.com
0: if anybody's interested. Um, and and uh, you're teaching? And, yeah, what happened is
1: one of the schools that I teach at, the Los Angeles College of Music in Pasadena, you know, they finally opened their doors. I, I told them when COVID uh, had to close their doors, I, wouldn't be able to teach my classes on Zoom because they're so interactive. I need all the musicians to be in the same room in order to bounce ideas off each other to create their own music. Um, and, and some of the other teachers handle that class differently when they bring in a preset chart or something like that. And it's called an elective ensemble. And from the very beginning I said, well, I'm not gonna bring anything preset in I just want you to make up your own music. Somebody start with an idea, and then we went from there. And then by the time uh, ten weeks go by, we'd have a performance at the end of ten weeks to four or five original pieces. That was pretty cool.
0: Yeah. So you had the performance with four four new pieces at the end of the of ten weeks, on your in your school. Yeah,
1: at the school. At the school, I had the students. You know, it's basically a, um, you know, it's it's a it's a, it's a it's a sort of a pop rock slash jazz classical school. And so you have rhythm section players there that are also interested in, um, you know, avant-garde music. And that's why they brought me in to begin with. And so the way I handle these elective ensembles, it's a rhythm section. You get a bass player, drummer, guitar, keyboard, maybe a couple horns. And uh, instead of me bringing in a chart from the book, let say, we're going to play this, we're going to play that. And I say Let's make something up, And then, you know, they'll come up with some really cool stuff. And, and then I'll lay some uh, wild, ideas, wild ideas on them about uh, pulse metric modulation and, you know, doing different kinds of chords, different kinds of keys and things like that. And, and uh, they eventually, you know, everyone has a song and, and you have 15 minutes to present it at the end of the quarter for, for your particular group. Yeah, cool. so that's one of the things I do there, and I teach private lessons to uh, piano students that um, um, are in the cracks. You know, that's why they brought me in. You know, <laughs> what do you mean in the cracks? Oh, you know, they they most of them, you know, they 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 have classical background, but they want to improvise, and so I I teach them um, uh, and guide them into being able to improvise and be natural at the piano in in the way that I know how to do because I, I've been improvising since I've been 18 months old and I've never taken an improvisation class or gone through a, a school system of, you know, here's jazz pedagogy, here's improvisation pedagogy, but I've created a lot of them and all I've basically done is drawn from my own experience of how I did it. And so I see, yeah
0: yeah i and, and yeah. I see you are I see you doing it all the time in in online too and and you're getting a rec- you're gonna record something soon,
1: yeah, yeah I, I mean um yes i will do some you mean like record it, uh
0: out there and uh, you you had someone backing you up, what was that for?
1: Now, what was that? Oh, I had various projects that, that have already come and gone. there have been a couple studio projects uh, for a composer friend of mine, Steve Bramson. We did uh, a recording. Um, and then, you know, um, before the pandemic hit, uh, they were starting up Animaniacs 2020 again. And we were at, down at Warner Brothers. And now they're opening the studios again. And, but it's, it's, it's difficult because, first of all, um, the main sound that they need are recorded uh, in studios are strings for the body of... Are what? Strings. I you know, all, yeah, strings for the body of most film scores, strings and brass. Um, you don't need to have a piano there unless it's really something soloistic. Um, and if they want to, because otherwise they could program it in, um, what's happened over COVID is that there've been a number of musicians, recording musicians who have provided, uh, stems or their own recordings from home and have recorded in a very high quality way so that the composers could take it and dump it into whatever system they use logic, whatever they use to put their score together. Uh, But I'm not set up that way. I was asked, but um, I don't have a good microphone. I have an older piano that I like out of tune. And so I went the other way. I just just played straight to Facebook, and a lot of people paid me money there for playing uh, songs they liked. So, yeah. But now that it's coming back, and, and like just past weekend, I had a really nice experience with the LA Opera Orchestra. We played. Um, down at the Ace Theater, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, full orchestra to um, the 2017 sort of horror comedic film um, um, "Get Out," and oh, yeah. with the composer they're conducting. And so uh, that was my first time getting out with um, you know in, in a, uh, with a major orchestra at a major venue playing piano and keyboard and uh, it was very cool to go and to do that and there's more of that coming up you know live live gestural live performance work and so that's that's coming up in the future so they're opening up the halls in other words yes you know and they and they still remember me
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well everybody's still a little bit stuck in what was before the pandemic, because nobody really developed in the, except maybe a couple of people that you were talking about. Yeah. But, um, anyway, yeah, I, I'm very interested in, in the way you improvise. I, we talked about it last time, but I, I didn't think about asking you to actually improvise something for us. And I wanted to correct that. I, um, the, the thing that struck me most was that you put the lyrics of the song in front of you. No, no charts or no nothing except the lyrics and then you go at it, right? Exactly.
1: I mean if I don't know the lyrics, if I'm playing a pop song, I really like putting the lyrics up there because you know the lyrics in the song are the song. And the lyrics are really important and great songs and they're wedded to the melodic and musical content. And so I really like word painting the lyrics, and sometimes I like using the lyrics as metaphor for something else. But the lyrics are the heart
0: of the song for me. And um, right, that's what that's what
1: I, what I try. I to think
0: do I think Leonard Cohen would agree with you. Yeah, yeah, Lennon yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you bet.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: but uh, yeah. So, would you would you improvise something for us? What do you want me to play a song? Or yeah. Or play- yeah, that'll be, that'll be nice. You have been playing so many of the great songs on YouTube. On and and yeah. every time you bring something new and different to it. So whatever you feel like bringing in, that'll be an yeah, I, I on
1: This will be interesting because it's, and you're right, every time I play a song or improvise on a song, it's always different. And it's because it's being informed by what other influences are at play inside of me. They could be internal things, they could be external things, but I'm always shifting um, the treatment of the song accordingly. So the first song that popped into my mind is one of John Lennon's most favorite songs, I mean, f- famous songs, is it's Imagine, okay? Now here in real time, right? you know, I, I'm not gonna bring in t- too much social uh, issues into all of this, but I'm not unaware of um, everything that's going on socially. I just don't talk about it anymore on uh, social <laughs> media because I would rather play music. Um, You know, I find that uh, there's a lot of crosstalk when you get into posting opinion and people aren't really listening to each other. So, um, but today, for instance, it's an interesting day in the world of um, um, human relationships, let's say that. And so when John Lennon wrote this song, Imagine he was basically writing songs. Imagine that there was just love between people, you know, imagine no heaven above us, no hell below, you know, and uh no countries, and that you know we just and this is what I say at the end of every one of my videos. I say, you know we you know take care of each other and right. uh, stay safe so I always wear this purple shirt. That's uh, purple is a specific color for me because it represents something. Um, It's basically the mix of red and blue, you know. I see. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Johnny Cash wore Johnny Cash wore black because he was the he was the advocate for the prisoner. For me, I always wear purple because it's the mixture of of red and blue together, and the mixture of of all people with different ideologies that come are living right next to each other. So I like I like purple for that reason. Uh, cool. Other people like purple because it's it's close to ultraviolet and they say it's a very elevated color. For me I, I wear it because it's the mix of, you know, it's it's the mix of red and blue. So today I feel like I could play Imagine with a bit of an attitude. You know, like it's more like, "Come on, people, <laughs> you know, get it together, you know, just put down the differences and just treat one another well. That's like yeah, so 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 I'll start this. I'll do it in his original key, but what I'm thinking right now when I the first thing I think of is a tempo and a feel, so if if I just said, "Come on, people, I'm thinking, doom do doom." Thank you. Cool. Cool. So that was a very hard-edged imagine. <laughs> and I was using specific things in there uh, harmonically to, to, to emphasize that. Yeah. It's because I've improvised all my life and because I consciously have worked on in my own way uh, improvisation, especially when it came to avant garde in new music because and and I I feel like it's my ultimate flow state, uh because I'm I'm expressing musically and so that's but also I'm engaging um I'm engaging my analytical brain. You know, different improvisers are all different. Um Some will turn up the analytical brain up to 10 or 8 or 9 and it'll all be about, well, this is an exercise. What I like to do is I like to have a full access to everything that's here in my left brain. Um, But what what I like to do is use it in service of the emotion to communicate a message. And so while I'm improvising, I'm aware of those throttles. Right yeah that's one basic level. Are you being too am I being too intellectual am I being you know so i I like to keep the right balance between those and then and then when I'm improvising, I'll hear things, and things will give me ideas of how to continue and then there's the simple idea of like the you know in the moment the tape recorder that's in the in your own mind um and so it's like very quick composition of course it's not going to be as thorough or intricate as a composition could be but it's basically a real-time compositional process because i'm remembering what i did at various points along the improvisation the keys i'm starting in what kind of devices i'm using what do i want to bring back as i'm going i'm tracking where i want a climax to be and then as i'm playing i'm uh, something also indicates to me, oh, you know, I'm about this far from the ending. So I have a sense of when to transition to an ending. And so all of those things together and then the storytelling part of it and communicating the message for me is an ultimate flow state using, using everything that I have at my disposal in combination with the classical technique uh, that, that I developed doing repertoire. So, I see, that, see. that's what
0: it is for me. Yeah. I got it, I got it. Um, yeah. um, I was gonna, I was ask, gonna you, ask you, in music, I think that sometimes in, in contemporary avant-garde music, we forget a little bit the emotion and bring too much the analytical. Oh yeah. Uh, what do you think about that?
1: Well, I think it's true. And I also think that uh, emotions, I mean, I'll quote, I'll quote Mendelssohn. Um, Mendelssohn said that the emotions are far more specific than uh, thoughts and ideas. And now he said that, of course, during his time period when they were writing romantic music. Well, we can say the same thing about uh, what we, we could say, what is exactly our emotion? Uh, because it's not so simple. It's not like, okay, these, we have base states of emotion, rage, happy, uh, contentment, um, sadness, but, um, the emotions are most of the time extremely complex because they're mixed. They're mixed with all kinds of different things that tug against each other. And it's the emotional content of somebody's being and their, their emotional awareness that can actually drive them crazy because it's not something that either should be controlled. Sometimes it should be controlled, but it's something very difficult to get a grasp of. So that, the whole term mixed feelings, you know, <laughs> I, think, I think mixed feelings is more the rule than the exception. And we have a lot of schools of thought, especially in the 20th century in the new age, it says, well, what we need to do is get control of our mind so that we are in line and we're clear and we're happy. And, and And we have it all together, right? And so we have um, you know we've been over even, even through the um, generations, we've been swamped with literature and practices that how to handle your emotions, how not to be sad, how not to hang on to the past. And to me, it's the exact wrong, it's the wrong direction. to me, it's better. To develop the ability emotionally and, and they, they track this. this is the idea of, with highly intelligent people that have a strong mind are said to be able to hold ambivalence longer. In other words, right. uncertainty and ambivalence and to be in an ambivalent and uncertain state longer. And I think that's very important to be able to tolerate uncertainty. To tolerate violence, to tolerate a sort of diffused uh, focus. I tell people, I said most of the time, most of my awareness most of the time is unconcentrated and diffused, and taking taking in the the big pictures and the small pictures. And I said, I don't concentrate until I have to, <laughs> because concentration is application of a certain part of of uh, brain function, you know, it's not the rule for
0: me. <laughs> I see. Yeah. No, what I think also is, um, but I think that emotion, when you're listening to a piece of music particularly, yeah. you know, uh, is, I think it's a measure of how much you are connecting with a piece of music. I think that if you're just thinking about the piece of music, that's a different, that's a, I think it's a valid effect. You know when you are hearing a composition and just going, oh, that's he's doing that and he's doing that, and you are discovering the. But when it really you're able to connect emotionally, when it brings out some emotion, I think there is a more complete connection to the music. Without that emotion, sometimes I feel it. It can be more like analytical exercise. You can get the 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 emotion of um, you know like solving a complex problem you know you know and and uh or or of figuring out a little puzzle or of Mm -hmm. you know there is an emotion to that there is a there is a certain satisfaction to it yeah but i think that if you don't elicit some kind of emotional response to it uh excluding boredom (laughs) i mean maybe maybe Mm -hmm. boredom is even valid my my piano teacher my my mentor used to say that you know for some people going in and relaxing in a concert and going to sleep is actually a a benefit that they don't get usually. So, so don't put it down too much, but, uh, but I think that in general, some kind of emotional response can, can give you an idea of how much, how effective the work is, no?
1: Absolutely. And I think we're living in more balanced times that way too. I have, I just have a simple theory that at the beginning of the 20th century, back in the 1900s, 1918, uh, 1920, 1924, uh, we had, um, uh, we, we were going through past the industrial age and, and, and the sciences, we were starting to, you know, there were people like Einstein and Heisenberg and, and deep mathematicians that were starting to ask questions philosophically and look at the cosmos in terms of non, non-linear analyses and you know artists are pretty smart people um, and musicians you know where the, 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 the music music and mathematics lie very close together in the brain and and I think that it was a very natural thing for the musicians to say hey you know I want to infuse my work with a kind of um stoic intellectualism to present this structure and this idea of Buckminster Fuller. So the work of Zanakis or some other works, you know, that were based in, in pure intellectual structuralism uh, were actually very relevant for the time to bring that in because it was following suit, uh, to me, of the scientific thinking and the conceptual thinking that was going along. And there were other people at the same time, like Leonard Bernstein, that was aware of that, but also still aware of the Great American Songbook, still aware of the Overtone series, still aware of the fact that he thought that still tonality uh, because of the Overtone series was always informing non-tonality, regardless of whatever hexagram you put together. And nowadays what I find is that more people are writing music that it's more natural to fuse together the ideas of something having a conceptual component to it as well as an emotionally complex component to it and we've come through a period of transition that maybe lasted about 60 years or so
0: i see so you you think that um that we're arriving at a new fusion of that emotion and analytical part yeah i i think when when we look back on
1: it you know we we tend to look on, you know, historians that tend to look at abstract expressionism with the artists. Um, uh, and, uh, and, then they, and then they look at the revolt of abstract expressionism to jo- Joseph Hoffman and some others with, with the minimalism of uh, Joseph Klein and Elbers uh, and, um, and Rothko and combine the minimalism of that with the minimalism of Steve Reich's early Music and going back to and, and Philip Glass and going back to simple repetitive hypnotic patterns. And then you can see how in each of these composers and also the post-minimalists, how they've started to grow back into the emotional area to balance the expressionistic um, and then the revolt against expressionism into these fusions. So there's all kinds of fusions exist in every aesthetic, whether it's fusions in classical aesthetics or a huge fusion altogether of fusion in the sense of, uh, you know, that like, like what Scriabin always wanted, which was, you know, everything, you know, of <laughs> all the senses and, and a lot of performance art, a lot of, uh, and then in music, in particular fusions of pop and jazz fusions of avant-garde and improvisations fusions of, um, And even fusions that have to do with uh, timbral differences. uh, I see. Yeah, and how beats are created, uh, and what what they're able, what some of the young artists that are popular are able to discover in technology on the computer by, with an emotional response to a certain way that a bass drum is, is 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 filtered. You know. Yeah, I
0: I I find there is the fusion of um, of also sound in music you know yeah. that is happening the, the, the fusion of recorded sounds of things with music it's yes. I think that's in its infancy really what I've heard is is a little bit you know it's not totally there yet but I can see that it's going somewhere you know the, yeah. it'll arrive at at some I have friends that are good at that that doing this uh this these pieces with recorded sounds and musical instruments and that they combine them in an interesting way i i'm not convinced many times of the end result but still i i know that it's a valid art of expression valid form of expression that it's being explored now
1: well what it feels like to me i can make a little i just i just saw this image in my brain in 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 the um for the most part in the 20th century from the early 20th century on there, you know, and in the age of specialization, um, people kind of were either thought they had to, or were forced into these tubes, you know, okay. I'm in this tube, classical tube. I'm in this avant-garde tube. I'm in, I mean, it, it even got, of course, to the point, that, you know, where, well, you're either, either Stravinsky's class or Schoenberg's class, so they think, You know, yeah, but there are all these tubes like 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 maybe about 80 of them where people identified themselves with. And then what's happened in the 1990s and in the 2000s is everybody came popping out of these tubes because it was the end of the tube and everybody (laughs) everybody (laughs) came popping together into the same ethosphere. And they go, oh, what do we do? Hey, you over there. You were in that too, you know. And so if you have, that's what it, that's what it looks like to me, you know.
0: <laughs> that's an interesting. That's a very, very vivid metaphor, you yeah.
1: know. And other people have a vested interest in keeping the tubes going. Yeah, and, which is fine because there's billions of people and there's millions of artists, so we can have people popping out of the tubes with other tubes intact, and I mean yeah. it's it's really quite colorful. And so we're at the, be- I, I think we're at the beginning of this, what I would call untubing <laughs> of, of, you know, sort of the breaking down of, um, of all these categorical things. Yeah.
0: Um, I think, Yeah, I'm going to tell you, I think that's the influences of the marketers on the artists. Unfortunately, yeah. Unfortunately you know, yeah. they, they, there is a, you know, Artists have been forced a little bit into the job of marketers because if their art is not being listened to by enough people, they want it to be listened to by enough people. And they say, well, and then they start looking at marketing and stuff. And yeah. it's okay. You know, we need to do, but it's not the function of the artist to be the marketer, you know, in general. But
1: well, that's interesting because that's always.
0: That's what? Yeah. I didn't it's hear. It's been it.
1: true historically as well. It has been true historically. Um, Even, um, for instance, Bartok, um, he wrote his first piano concerto and his publisher said, well, we need something that has a little more public appeal. So he tried to put more into his second piano concerto to appease his publisher. It's still a pretty complex piece, but it has more of sort of a quasi-major, like, tonality and folk song tonality going on throughout it Um, and so uh, but at least in the mid part of the what what would counteract that um, with the marketers is that I I think the patrons of the arts and the patrons of contemporary music and other kinds of music there were more of them that were funding and, and backing a, a, um, a, a very broad swath of artists. Once we got into the past the 1970s, into the video age and popular music, suddenly, you know, everything started to get geared towards, oh, we are making our money in the industry on how many videos people are watching. And this is the kind of music that needs to go with the videos. And so the popular music sort of compressed, you know? Um, I see. And, and there weren't as many opportunities in the uh, recording industry and in the branding industry to still invite, you know, the kind of uh, imagination that Pink Floyd and Queen and um king crimson and yes brought to their popular musics in the 70s you
0: i know? see yeah that's an interesting that's an interesting thought i i had not seen that i was thinking do you do uh classical improvisations also yeah i like those yeah very much Would you like to do one for us sure I'll, i for some reason i'm thinking
1: of the key of e flat okay <laughs> E flat's a warm key, so I'll do a, a classical improvisation that basically is a. Um, I'll do a short rondo. I'll come back. I'll create a theme, and then okay. uh, I'll go away from the theme and come back. Now, um, well, the only thing that makes it classical is a kind of um, a kind of straighter style, uh, and also harmonically, the functions uh, in a in a key are related to each other in a more clear and specific way in
0: terms of their... It can be as avant-garde as you want to. Oh,
1: I, I can maybe, I can make, what I'll do is I'll, I'll start out with a, I'll improvise a classical theme and then I'll keep in mind, maybe I can go into some later Rachmaninoff or Prokofiev and maybe do um, uh, some polytonality, which I have these ideas of where polytonality and the jazz modes actually intersect. A theory about it that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay. So I'll do it. I'll do a theme. Do some.
0: Yeah. Sure. really cool. I
1: strolled I, in I strolled into some different areas.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why not? It's, it's so nice to see someone with the chops to do that, with the chops to be able to, to get the theme going and then improvise on it and do different things with it. And it's, I was yeah. thinking how very few people can do that these days. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, being a pianist myself, I love the instrument and and I miss being it played more and being used more. There is there is something very warm about a piano that you cannot get in other things. I think.
1: Absolutely. And for me, I mean, I keep telling this story. I look at these hands and, and they, they they sat on my great-grandmother's piano piano when I was 18 months old. And so The neurology and the touch was, and the expression, and whatever, however, I was analyzing what I was doing and hearing in the inner ear, and everything got wired together in terms of the whole system. And so I still feel that way. It's just that it's it's over the years it's been able to gradually, progressively, become more and more and more colorful and rich you know where you know I enjoy playing very simple things like them and then I like bringing where I happen to be in terms of the edges of the pellet sometimes into it and and it's actually kind of an endless process so I do two things sometimes I push the envelopes in my own practicing. Other times I just like to go into certain areas to reinforce things that I've done before, you know, and to reinforce just the shine up. And, you know, it would be very similar to going and practicing, repracticing scales in our pages, which I'll do something sometimes too, or taking a piece of repertoire and slowing it down to reinforce the initial learning stages of it. I think it's it's very important to um, when the growth process when I'm teaching and I'm I'm, I, I'm always telling the students to always go up and then come back to an initial part of the learning experience and then go up again come back go up come back instead of always having to have the pressure of always being on the top of where you stopped last. That's
0: the, interesting.
1: Yeah, you re, by reinforcing the foundations, all you need to do is do it for 10 minutes and five minutes, but it, it brings all of that back and it, allow, and it allows the edge to grow more um, with less anxiety. And that's how, um, that's, how you get these, that's how you get a performance that's incredibly fluid and, and masterful Without the anxiety, I think it's the way in which people practice, or make their innate giftedness. Yeah,
0: I see. Uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I I have a question. When you say go up and back, are you talking about how you practice the same piece, right?
1: Yeah, you That could be. That, that's a metaphor that can
0: be applied to the same piece. It could or, be- or go up and then go back to basic exercise that's that's my question yeah,
1: you could also do that as well you can go go up and then you can go to some scales in our pages you know the building blocks right you know, so it can be it can be um what intra internally to the piece right. it could be extracurricular you know that includes more um, of the kinds of things that that that, that, that substantiate the your one's ground in this it's like I think I, I don't know if I heard this about Tiger Woods or about the great golfers. Once they were done in um, uh, with an 18 holes or, or 36 holes or 72 holes, and and the winner, that's when they would go back to the golfing range and start to practice the rudiments again, right after they had won the competition or right after these they, the, the, the athletes had. Um,
0: uh, yeah. yeah, you yeah. know the 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 carnival of the animals, right?
1: Yeah,
0: the pianist is <laughs> <He's> included there. <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> you know, my my mentor Mario Fenninger, met uh, Godard in concert. Uh, okay. yeah. Godard, he was a great pianist and a great composer. He wrote I love Godard's music. Yeah he wrote 54 etudes based on Chopin's etudes that were more difficult than the Chopin etudes. Oh, he did? Yes, he oh, did. God. And they're out of print now, but I would love to get my hands on how do you make those things more difficult, you know? <laughs> but but wow. one thing, one thing that, that Mario told me is that he used to, be very nervous before a concert. He had stage fright. Mm-hmm. In a concert, you wouldn't notice anything. The playing was absolutely masterful. But and and also uh, Bach in his uh, the son of Bach that in his the art of playing keyboard instruments. He yeah. said, you know, never play a piece that you cannot play in in that you have problems in in uh, private in public because you're gonna lose about twenty percent of your ability to perform when you are in front of a public. Yeah. So if it's not coming out in practice, <laughs> don't try it in public, please.
1: That, <laughs> absolutely right. That would, that would be CPE, Carl, Philip, and Yes, exactly. Um, right. And that's good advice. I, the, the advice that I've tried to give um, students when they're practicing, because there's nothing like the continued experience of being in front of an audience, uh, to actually, but is the idea that when you're in a practice room, uh, is, is there are 80%, there are things we focus on and then 80% of the things we don't focus on, we're also learning. So if we're practicing under high anxiety, uh, our system is learning the anxiety as well. That's true. Um, So, and and what ends up happening sometimes is if we're we're always starting and stopping, you know, erratically and just fixing the wrong note, well, then the performance can be note perfect, but what it ends up sounding like is a great performance of playing, a great performance of not making mistakes. And that's all that's there, you know, (laughs) (laughs) because that's what was practiced. And a lot of times when I'm, if I'm... Like if I memorize a new piece, if I have to play with orchestra, I, I um, actually practice the distractions. I, 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 I will play through it because I might know the concertmaster. I'll, I'll see the audience out there. And so I'll invite all of these things into my practicing that I know are going to be extra stimulation in the performances. And then when I get there, it's like, oh, I've already been here. At least that helps a little bit.
0: That's great. That's great advice. And I think with that great piece of advice, we're going to end up end here. We could be keep talking for a couple of hours. I'm sure.
1: And, uh,
0: but it's always fun. And it's always nice to hear you're playing. And, uh, I want to thank you very much for being with me. It's my pleasure. And, uh, and we'll have to, uh, to continue this. We will. And, uh, Thank you very much.
1: You had a lifetime friendship my friend. And, uh, That's right. Take care of yourself. Thank you for inviting me again.